Now we're going to open our Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and, and I mentioned last week that I kind of wanted to depart from our normal translation uh, just for this passage for three or four weeks, um, not because there's anything wrong with the ESV translation, it's just the, there's some peculiarities in the Greek that um, kind of make it, you got to make a decision about how you want to do things, and I think the New King James does it a little bit better, so what's on the on the screen is New King James, and, and if you want to follow along in a book, the Pulpit Bible is also New King James. And we'll be doing this for uh, one, maybe two more weeks, and then we'll go back to the ESV and move on to, to verse 15 and following. But we've been, we're going to continue to unpack these four verses here. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We believe and confess and cling to what your Bible says about itself, that it is your chosen instrument for accomplishing your work in the world, that it is a hammer which breaks the rock, that it tears down every lofty argument raised against you and against Jesus. That it is alive, that it's sharp, it's active. It doesn't rely on normal human powers of persuasion, but it is the instrument of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what you want to accomplish in the world. If your word won't do it, it won't be done. And so we have confidence in your word. Please, King Jesus, use your word as you have purposed to use it this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you, uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it's always good to ask for advice from people who do know what they're doing. And what I have found over my life is that almost always, if you go to somebody that knows what they're doing and you say to them, hey, you know what you're doing and I don't, would you give me advice? Almost always, they're willing to give you that advice. It's pretty amazing. I, I started a business and, and I, I just went to people who knew about the thing that I was interested in and I, I asked them and they shared all kinds of information with me very freely that was very helpful. Well, in the late 1970s, the Triumph Motorcycle Company of England went bankrupt. And uh, nobody wanted to buy their motorcycles anymore because they were just too unreliable. And Japanese bikes were competitively priced and they were very high quality. There wasn't anything wrong with the design of the British motorcycle, but all of their, all of their machinery, their mills and their lathes and things like that for making the, the engines were from World War II era and they were just worn out. So you couldn't get a consistent result. And the guys that knew how to kind of fudge it because they were really experienced machinists, they weren't able to, they, they, they retired and the new generation just wasn't up to snuff. 
And so these bikes went from the, the, in the 1950s and 60s, the Triumph Bonneville, the 750, that was the fastest wheeled vehicle on the planet. I mean, that was just the, the fastest production vehicle on the planet was a Triumph Bonneville with a 750 twin in it. And they went from that pinnacle of success in the 50s and 60s to complete trash by the end of the 1970s. And as the, the company went into bankruptcy and receivership, a man named John Bloor stepped in. He was a real estate magnate. He'd made his money in real estate. And he bought the name Triumph, and he bought the manufacturing rights. But John Bloor was a real estate guy. He didn't know anything about building motorcycles. And so he said, I'm going to ask the people who do. And so he actually went to Japan, and he asked Japanese manufacturers to show him how to build a decent motorcycle. And they did. And he writes about it in an interview. Ever the smart businessman, Bloor immediately surrounded himself with people who knew motorcycles, Triumph motorcycles in particular. His first move was to hire three employees of the original Triumph company who had been involved in developing new models. The second thing he did was to take his newly formed group to the altar of motorcycle manufacturing, Japan. Quote, I knew the Japanese were the best source of motor, motorcycle manufacturing wisdom, so I took the guys over there with me. Why would the Japanese help a potential rival? Quote, they were very open and polite, but they weren't scared of us, he recalls. They must have looked at us and thought, if you think you can do it, good luck to you. The quality and style of the motorcycles being produced by the Japanese manufacturers quickly convinced them that the old Triumph Company's unfinished development projects were hopelessly obsolete. We decided to scrap the lot and start fresh, said Bloor. Well, Triumph resumed production in 1991, and in 1994, they began exporting Triumphs to the United States again. And I own two of their bikes. I own a, a 1997 Triumph Thunderbird, and uh, I think there's a picture of it there. And I own a 1995 Triumph Adventure. So the second model year after they began exporting, my, my, my adventure is from that generation. They're both in my garage, and they are great bikes. That the, the, the motor in both of those bikes is a 900cc triple, and it will walk all over a Harley all over a Harley, even though it's only about two-thirds the size of a Harley's engine. And people ask me, because I lived in Sturgis, do you ride, you ride hard, a motorcycle? I said, yeah. They said, do you, ride a, do you have a Harley? I said, no. Well, why not? Well, I said, a Harley's not a motorcycle. It's a converter. Well, what do you mean? It converts gasoline into noise without the side effect of horsepower. I ride British bikes. I ride Triumphs, and I love my Triumphs. Now, I have a photo. This is what I feel like when I ride my Triumph. And this is what I actually look like when I ride my Triumph. <laughs> but if you know exactly what you're doing, if you have a vision, if you have a plan, if you have knowledge, if you have experience, if you have control over your environment, you don't need to ask for advice, do you? You don't need it. 
The more you truly know, as opposed to merely thinking you know, which is arrogance, the more you truly know, the less you need or can even benefit from someone else's advice. For instance, the CEO of Honda and Suzuki and Kawasaki and Yamaha, they didn't need to go to John Bloor to ask for advice because they already knew how to build top-notch motorcycles. Now think for a minute about Almighty God. Almighty God has, the scriptures say, perfect knowledge of everything. Everything past, everything present, everything future. That's what it means when we say that he is omniscient. He knows all things. And Almighty God, says the scriptures, has complete power and complete control over everything in his creation. Everything that exists only exists and holds together because he wills it to keep existing and holding together. We find that in Colossians 1 and in Hebrews 1 both. And that's true of things that aren't rebelling against him, like angels and animals and the rocks and the trees. And it's true of the things that are rebelling against him like demons and fallen human beings. And God works in such a way that all of these things fulfills His holy will. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God knows what He wants to do. And He has all knowledge about everything and all power over everything. And He is good. And His plan is good. And because of that, nobody is in a position to give God advice. Nobody is in a position to give God counsel. God has a a plan. Some parts of his plan are closely guarded secrets. And some parts of his plan he has made known. It says in Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children after us. There are some things that God said, that's my secret, and it's just off limits. And, and, and it's actually a sin to try and pry into those. Some people are like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to march right up to God and say, why did you do that, God? I want to know why that happened. And uh, first of all, I don't recommend taking that attitude with your Creator. But second of all, you may or may not get an answer. He might just look at you and say, that's my secret. And it's mine. And I'm not going to share it with you. And that's my prerogative because I'm God. He has secrets. And he has things that he's revealed. His plan is a wise plan. His plan is a good plan. His plan is a mysterious plan. And it is a secret plan. When the Apostle Paul contemplates the parts of his plan which have been revealed to him, specifically in Romans 8 through 11 and the mystery of the question of why the Jews as a whole have not uh, received Christ, but rather have rejected him while the Gentiles seem to be pouring into the kingdom of God. And he unpacks that and he talks about God's purpose that the church would start Jewish, become Gentile. And he says, someday it will become Jewish again. And all Israel will be saved. He said, I've got a plan. God's got a plan. 
And then when he contemplates that, he just breaks out into spontaneous wonder and spontaneous praise. Listen to what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has, been given, a, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forevermore. Amen. So in today's passage, we get a, a glimpse. Paul explains a little bit more of God's revealed plan, and it has to do with us. It has to do with his people. And the scope and the magnitude of the plan, when you understand it, is breathtaking. It is absolutely astonishing. Last week, we explored what it meant that you have an inheritance. You're a trust fund baby. Fantastic wealth and fantastic blessing and fantastic, everything basically that you're fighting to get down here in this life and half the time failing at and are frustrated about, it's gonna be yours in a way that will never be taken away from you, in a way that you'll never get tired of it, in a way that it'll never turn sour. It, that's your inheritance. In the portion we study today, we learn a little bit more. We see, first of all, that God predestined you to receive your inheritance. That's in verse 11 and 12. God predestined you. The word in Greek is proorizo. It means to decide upon beforehand, to foreordain, to mark out beforehand, or to predetermine. That word predestined is often closely related in Scripture to another word, prognosco, which means to foreknow or to know beforehand. And, and so, for instance, we see these two words very closely together in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And if you want to turn there, you can, but if not, I think we put it up on the screen. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know, this is a precious verse for a lot of people, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. Not for everybody, for those who love God. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, prognosco, he also predestined, proorizo, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And what did he predestine them to do? He predestined them to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then he goes on in verse 30 to explain what that process looks like, what, what God uses. That passage is often called the golden chain of salvation, or in Latin, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And we have predestination, and then we have an effectual call on the predestined person, 
And then we have justification, which is declaring them righteous before a holy God. And then we have glorification, which is the final outcome of God's purposes. That's us in heaven with new bodies and no sin. But what we want to focus on today is the relationship between foreknowledge and predestination. Some people describe the relationship between the two this way. God foreknows everything that will ever happen, which is absolutely true, absolutely. God looked down the corridors of time and saw which people would choose Christ and which ones wouldn't, and so God then chooses them in return and maybe even clears away any obstacles which the devil or sinful men might raise up to try and prevent that person from choosing Christ. Now, in theology, this is called the prescient view of predestination. Presbyterian and Reformed people disagree with that for a number of reasons, but we'll only explore one of them today. Look closely at Romans 8.29 again. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say those whose choices God foreknew, he predestined. Instead, it says those people whom he foreknew, he predestined. Well, what does that mean? Well, in one sense, God foreknows every person who ever was born or will be born. He knows their name. He knows their gender. He knows their place of birth. He knows the time of their their death. He knows everything about them. He knows all their thoughts. He certainly knows what all their future choices will be. There's no argument there. And not just their choices about Christ, but also their choices about things as mundane as what color of shoes they're going to wear or their breakfast. But the foreknowledge that's described in Romans 8.29 leads to Christ-likeness and to glory. It leads to salvation. So it, it can't just be talking about God knowing choices. In the Bible, what does it mean for one person to know another? It always implies intimacy. It always implies love. So for instance, in John chapter 14, verses, or John chapter 10, rather, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, we see Paul writing, and he says, I should have just written these down rather than flipping because I put them in slides and you won't flip with me. 8.3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It said in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife and she bore Cain. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And one last verse, John chapter 17 and verse 3, which is the, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this is actually the only definition of eternal life given in all the scriptures. Jesus gives it to us, John chapter 17. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to know somebody in the scriptures is to be in deep relationship with them, is to be in a love relationship with them. So back to Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. If one person knowing another implies loving, intimate relationship, who is the person who is initiating the loving, intimate relationship in Romans 8, 29? Who's doing the, the, the loving? God, before there was a, a world. And that loving, intimate relationship initiated by God leads to what? Predestination, his determination or decree about a, a certain end. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And them only, right? Because those whom he predestined, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And we know it's them only because he predestined them to be like Jesus. He predestined them to an inheritance, and when did God initiate this love relationship? Well, that was all the way back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. God says, or Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So we go back to verse 11. We've obtained an inheritance. And God purposed or decreed our inheritance beforehand. He set his love upon those whom he predestined before there was a world, before there was a big bang, maybe even before he created angels. And he predestined to give us an inheritance. Now what comes next fills me with awe. And it fills me with wonder. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. I should just leave it open. Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God is at work in this process. He's working all things, and he's continually working to bring about the purposes of his heart, one of which is to save you and to conform you to the image of his son and to bless you with an inheritance that is so good, it's literally everything you've ever dreamed of your whole life, plus some stuff that never even occurred to you, and it's so fantastic. And what, God, and what is God directing? What is he using? What is he controlling to bring about his purpose? To bless you. All things. He's working all things according to the purpose of his will. What is included in all things? Everything. 
Everything that exists, God is working on and using to bring about his purpose, which is to give you the inheritance that he predestined you to. Now, this is staggering when you really unpack it. God, why did you create the universe? To redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why did you create the angels? To redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why did you create the earth? Why did you create the oceans and the continents? Why did you fill them with the creatures of so many wonderful kinds that inhabit them to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever? God, why did you create Lucifer? Why did you ordain his fall and the fall of the reprobate angels to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why did you create man? Why did man fall into sin and into ruin? Why is there death? Why do the wicked raise themselves up against you and against each other and everyone else to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why did you call Abraham? Why did you use an infertile old postmenopausal woman to bring forth Isaac and then Jacob and the sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever? God, why did the children of Israel fall into cruel bondage in Egypt? Why did you raise up Pharaoh and harden his heart? Why do you bring Israel out through the Red Sea? Why do you judge Israel and cause them to wander in the desert for a generation? Why did you bring them to the promised land? And why did you give them the law through Moses? And God says to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why were your people so stubborn and hard-hearted? Why were there more bad kings than there were godly kings among them? Why did you raise up the prophets to speak to them? Why did you raise up the Assyrian Empire to take the ten northern tribes into captivity and destruction? Why did you raise up the Babylonian Empire to take Judah into captivity, but for only 70 years? Why did you preserve Judah in the midst of Babylon when you didn't preserve Israel in the midst of Assyria? Why did you allow them to return and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple? And God says to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why did Alexander the Great conquer the whole known world? Why did you raise up Rome? Why King Herod? He killed all those babies in Bethlehem. He's such a nasty man. Why did a virgin bear a son? Why did he live, teach, and go about doing miraculous good? Why was he suffered? Why was he crucified? Why did he rise again to life? To redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why did you raise up the church in Jerusalem? And why did you spread it over the whole earth? 
Why was the heart of your church in Europe? Why Constantine? Why Attila the Hun? Why the sack of Rome? Why the dark ages? Why Charlemagne? Why the Vikings? Why Alfred the Great? Why the deep corruption in your church? Why the great schism and the black death? To redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why Luther and Calvin and Knox? God, why the Spanish Inquisition? Why the discovery of the Americas? Why the conquistadors? God, why the settlement of North America? Why the American Revolution? Why did you permit the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution? And the French Revolution? Why did you allow the rise of scientific atheism, of Darwin, of Nietzsche, of Freud, of Marx? Why was there a Bolshevik Revolution? Why Hitler? Why the Holocaust? Why Chairman Mao? Why Pol Pot? Why was the 20th century the bloodiest century in human history? Why have the leaders of our culture rejected the best information on human well-being and flourishing that's available to the human race, which is found in the teachings of Jesus? They didn't follow it very well before, but at least they acknowledged it and it restrained some of their worst excesses. And God says, to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why does wickedness increase? across the world at a fantastic pace. Why will nation rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom? Why will there be earthquakes and famines and signs in the heavens? Why will the love of most grow cold? Why will the one who restrains evil be removed? Why the increase in wickedness? Why do they think they're doing God a favor when they kill us? Why the beast? Why the Antichrist? Why the great tribulation? Why are we like sheep to the slaughter being killed all day long? Why will we be called before governors and magistrates and kings to defend ourselves? To redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist in bliss with me forever. God, why will the last trumpet sound? Why will the dead in Christ arise? Why will we who are left be transformed in the twinkling of an eye? Why will we meet you in the air? Why the great white throne of judgment? Why the defeat of all who hate you? Why the lake of fire? Why the release of nature from the bondage of decay? Why the new heavens and the new earth? And God says to redeem and bless a special treasured people who will glorify me and exist with bliss, ex exist in bliss with me forever. God, I see that the road to destruction is wide and easy and well-traveled and many, many, many people walk that road. God, I see that the road that leads to life is narrow and the gate is narrow. It's hard and few there are who find it. God, I see that many are called, but few are chosen. I see that you invite many to your eternal banquet, but they all find excuses not to come. 
Though there are multitudes of redeemed in heaven, God, the multitudes in hell far outnumber them. Is that fair? Is it worth it to do all of this? Just to redeem for yourself and bless a special treasured people who will glorify you and exist in bliss with you forever? And God says, I keep my own counsel, child. I have secrets you know not of. I am the judge of all the earth, and I will do right. But the answer to that question is yes. The redemption and bliss of my chosen ones is one of my highest priorities. They are my treasure. And God, thank you so much for making me one of your treasures. I cannot even fathom why you would honor me in this way. All I can do is bow before your majesty. All I can do is be lost in wonder and love and praise. Jesus tells us to consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Both those things specifically, but he's, he's telling us if you look at the creation, it will teach you about God. Let's just look at one aspect of the creation for a minute. We live in a vast, vast universe. And the overwhelming majority of that vast universe is empty space, completely empty. There are a few stars with floating rocks around them sprinkled throughout that universe. But they don't take up very much space compared to the empty stuff. Our star, which is the only one we know much about for sure, has nine planets. Only one of those planets supports life. There may be other planets with life on them somewhere else. God could have done that. C.S. Lewis wrote a marvelous science fiction trilogy on that thesis. But the possibility at this point in time, according to many scientists, seems remote. So we're the only planet that we know of for sure. Orbiting around this star, one star in the midst of millions of stars, billions of stars, billions of stars take up almost nothing in this vast, empty universe. And on this one planet, it's teeming with life. There are 8.7 million species of life on this one ball around this one small star in the midst of all these other stars in the midst of this vast canopy of complete emptiness. There's 8.7 million different species of life on this planet. And of that 8.7 million species, only one is capable of relating to God as a rational creature with a soul. The rest are not capable of knowing God like we are. At a certain point in history, God called one man out of all the other men that existed and had existed to that point on the planet, Abraham and his wife, and they were special out of all the millions and millions of people on the earth, 
who are special out of all the millions and millions of species of creatures on the earth, who are on a special planet, which is special out of all the potential planets that we know about, which is in the midst of a vast, empty universe. And he turned Abraham into a great nation. But of all the nations in the world, all the tribes in the world, only the, the people descended from Abraham, and not just from Abraham, but from only one of his sons, the Jews, were the focus of God's saving activity in the world. God left the rest of the nations in their sin and in their barbarism. And if you study any of those cultures, you see how utterly barbaric they were. In Jesus, God opens up the privileges that were initially granted to the Jews to everyone else. But very few, relatively speaking, come to him. Very few profess him when you consider all of human history. And according to the Bible, the rest who don't are lost. But then when you take even those who profess him, on the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 22, there are many who will come to him on the last day and say, Lord, we did all this stuff for you. We were in church every Sunday. We did nice things. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So even among the minority of people who ever lived on the earth, who credibly profess Christ to do, and do mighty works in his name on the word of Jesus, many of those are people to whom he will say, I never knew you. And so the saved are even fewer. Do you see that one of the great themes of God's vast, complex, created order is that all of this is his and serves his purposes, but it's only a tiny, tiny remnant of everything that exists that is the focus of his special love and saving attention. And if you are truly one of those, if you are truly in Christ, then you are the pinnacle of all that I just described. You are the reason for all of it. And all of it has been done for you. Let that sink in for a minute. All of it for you. Do you understand the position? We talked today about privilege. Such and such group is more privileged than the other. We are in Christ privileged beyond all understanding, beyond all reason, beyond all comprehension, beyond anything that we can imagine. You are the focus of the whole stinking story under Christ. It's for you. So please, please, make your calling and election sure, prove your repentance by your deeds, and then never, ever worry about anything else again. Ever. Anything. Because God, Almighty God, has placed you in the palm of his hand, and you and your well-being and your eternal bliss are among his highest priorities. And he says, I will take exquisite care of you forever. You are my treasured, special possession. And I love you. Be at peace, child. You are mine.
Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer.